Ichabod is a strange word. Its meaning is even more bizarre. The word Ichabod means the glory of God is gone. The presence of God is removed. I can't think of anything more devastating than Ichabod. Can you? Can you imagine a world where the glory of God is gone? Can you even begin to conceive living life when the presence of God has been removed? I cannot fathom anything more horrific than the God-forsakenness of Ichabod. And yet when we come to Psalm 22, David describes for us an Ichabod moment. Today I invite you to draw your sword, turn to Psalm 22, and once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. This is a psalm of David, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and they were not disappointed. But I... I am a worm, not a man, scorned by men, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near. There is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of the earth. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. 
From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. For he has done it. This is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God. You may be seated. A Psalm of David. It's a psalm that begins with a lament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I know you have read the words, but have you felt the words? These are feelings of forgottenness. These are feelings of forsakenness. These are feelings of abandonment. These are feelings that David says he is alone, yet he's in a crowd. My God, my God, why have you of all people forsaken me. You've heard the words. Have you ever felt the words? Maybe you know what it is to be forsaken, abandoned, forgotten, alone. Four times in the opening lines of this psalm, David asks for God to shrink the space between them. He acknowledges that God is far off, distant, Why are you so far from saving me? Verse 1. So far from the words of my groaning? Verse 1. Verse 11. Be not far off, for trouble is near me. Verse 19. Be not far off, for you are my strength. Come, help quickly. On four occasions, David asked for God to shrink the space between them because David acknowledges that it's a dangerous place to be when you're distant from God. Can I submit to you this morning that one of the most dangerous places to ever live is to follow Jesus at a distance? Oh, you recognize him. You kind of know him. You're a safe distance away from him, not to get too close, not to get too personal, not to feel his breath against your neck. Oh, but you know of him. You are aware of where he is. Oh, my friend, it is very dangerous to follow Jesus at a distance. David acknowledges this. It is a dangerous place to follow at a distance. Yet, when you follow God closely, that's a place of comfort. That's a place of security. That's a place of fulfillment. So on four occasions, he asked for God to shrink the space between them. Be not far off. Be not far off. Why are you so far from saving me? In the opening lines, David wavers between despair and devotion. In verse 2, I've cried out to you day and night, but you have not answered. I have not been silent, but you have been silent. That's despair. Then in verse 3, he mentions a word of devotion. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. You have delivered our fathers, for they trusted in you and you delivered them. But then in verse 6, he falls back into despair. But I, I am a worm. I'm not even as worthy as my forefathers. 
I'm not even a man. I, I am one who is gloated over. I'm one who is ridiculed. They say he trusts God. Let God rescue him. There's a feeling of despair in these words. Yet, you get to verse 9 and David rebounds in devotion. He says in verse 9, yet you made me trust you. Even at my mother's breast, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. You made me put my trust in you. Do you hear this wavering, this waffling between despair and devotion? Oh, David's just being real. Because if you've ever had an Ichabod moment, if you've ever had a moment of frustration and forsakenness, if you've ever felt abandoned, isolated, and alone, then I know, my friend, you can relate to David. Going between trust and tears... Walking between pain and praise. Loving the Lord in the midst of setback, yet sometimes celebration. Maybe you know what it is to waver and waffle between despair and devotion. I think David is just portraying a real experience. It's, it's real life. This is the Psalms. This is how life really is. Sometimes even the strong and robust of heart waver and waffle. You get to verse 12 to 18, and David seems to describe the particulars of his Ichabod moment. He says in very symbolic terms that I'm surrounded by bulls, Bashan bulls, some of the strongest known in that day. I'm surrounded by roaring lions. You know, those kind of lions that open their mouths wide to chomp down on their prey. That's what's surrounding me, David says. My bones are out of joint. My my heart is turned to wax. My strength is gone. Tongue is sticking to the roof of my mouth. I'm surrounded by a band of evil men. Oh, they gloat over me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. David says they've taken my garments. Now they're casting lots for my clothing. He says in verse 19, be not far from me. Come quickly to help me. Oh, there is despair. There is a feeling of being distraught, forsaken, abandoned. And whatever he's describing is something that is horrific. Everything turns on a dime in verse 22. Everything shifts. Everything changes. From 22 to the end, which is verse 31, everything changes from pain to praise from despair to devotion. Then you get into verse 22. I will declare your name to my brothers. Verse 24 and 25. For I know that he, being God, does not despise nor disdain the suffering of the afflicted one. Because of what's being done, the poor, they will eat and be satisfied. All the peoples of the earth will remember and return to the Lord. That word return means to repent. All the peoples of the earth will repent. Why? Because God is the one who rules over the nations. And not just the poor will eat and be satisfied, but also the rich, those wealthy. They will worship and feast. In fact, all the people in the great assembly will give praise unto God. They will 
proclaim to a people not yet born, a future generation, all of the deeds that God has done. And they, in turn, will tell those yet unborn, he has done it. You get through this psalm, and it is an emotional roller coaster. I mean, it starts in the pit of despair. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By the time you get through, you're at the apex of the mountaintop where he declares he has done it. It's a roller coaster. It's a yo-yo. It's up and down, in and out. Things are good. Things are bleak. Things are bleaker, bleaker, and now things are better. And it's all over the map. It's an Ichabod moment. I will tell you, this is one of the most intriguing psalms in all the Bible. Oh, it's not intriguing because it turns on a dime in verse 22. There are other psalms that do that. A great case, an example, is Psalm 73. We studied that about six weeks ago. There is the psalm of Asaph. Asaph is about to throw in the towel. He's the worship leader of Israel. He's about to quit on God. Why? Because the wicked are winning. They're getting away scot-free. They're always carefree. They always have a fat bank account. Nothing bad ever happens to them. And he begins to proclaim and pontificate about how the wicked are always winning. And because of that, God, because you're not stepping in and, uh, and correcting them, I'm going to quit. And everything is sour until he entered the sanctuary of God. And then he realized their final destiny for God rules and reigns with the end in mind. And he has placed them on a slippery slope. And by the time you get to the end of Psalm 73, Asaph is praising the Lord. This one who began in the pit, then he ends in a mountaintop of praise. This is not abnormal in the Psalms. So for me to say that Psalm 22 is one of the most intriguing Psalms in all the Bible, that doesn't mean that it's intriguing necessarily because it turns on a dime. Other Psalms do that. What makes this one so intriguing is because nobody knows the historical context of David's life when he writes this psalm. Most, if not all, the psalms have a historical context. You know, who the author is and what he's going through, which prompted the writing of a particular psalm. But nobody, nobody can find a personal experience in David's life that mirrors the description that he portrays in Psalm 22. Nobody can find an example of, of him going through these things as portrayed specifically in verses 12 to 18. Now, I'm not denying that David didn't have an Ichabod moment. Certainly he did. There were times that he felt God forsaken. There were times he felt abandoned. There were times he felt isolated. There were times that he was frustrated. Undoubtedly, he had Ichabod moments in his life, probably more than one. He, like you, like me, we all have Ichabod moments. But the particulars of this description, this is unique. Nobody can pinpoint a historical event that happened in David's life that mirrors what he describes in Psalm 22. I'm not the first person to say this. This realization called Warren Wearsby to write these words. Wearsby said, the incident described in Psalm 22 is not that of a man on his deathbed. It's not that of a wounded soldier in the battlefield. No, David is describing a criminal being executed. Derek Kidner said that David is being prophetic He's writing this as a prophet, for he is 
speaking of that which has not happened to him, but in prophetic fashion, he is looking forward to what will happen at the crucifixion of Christ. I agree with Derek Kidner. I think that David writes this as a prophet. Now, oftentimes we don't think of David as a prophet. We think of him as a shepherd boy. We think of him as a king. But we rarely consider David as a prophet. We don't put him in the same class or category of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Micah, just to name a couple and a few. No, we think of David as a shepherd, as a king, but not a prophet. But Derek Kidner is not the first one to call David a prophet. You know, the apostle Peter called David a prophet. When, they, when Peter stood to preach on the day of Pentecost, it's in Acts chapter 2, verse 29. Allow me to read these words for your hearing. Peter is standing on the day of Pentecost. He's proclaiming that great message. And he, and he says, brothers, I tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet. He knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. David wrote this psalm in prophetic fashion. What makes this even more intriguing is that David had probably never witnessed a crucifixion. This mode of execution was not popular a thousand years before Christ. It's the Roman government that perfected this form of execution. And yet he describes it perfectly, doesn't he? For according to the Gospels, it is, it is Jesus who is executed as a criminal. It, it, is, it is Jesus that as he stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem, went on top of the hill called Golgotha, outside of the city gates, that there they stretched his arms across that beam so that his bones were out of joint. And because of the dehydration, because of the severe blood loss, because of the brutal beatings that Jesus had endured, undoubtedly there was fluid that had developed in his pericardium, that area around his heart, so that it could be said and felt that Jesus' heart turned to wax. And because of the sluggish blood that was pulsating through his body because of the headache that was throbbing in his mind his strength was gone dried up in fact because of the severe dehydration his tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth you may recall that Jesus spoke that one word phrase dipso which means I thirst they offered him some wine vinegar to dull the pain Every gospel writer is exactly the same when he writes that they pierce the hands and feet of Christ. They gloated over him. He saved others. Why can't he save himself? He trusts in God. Let God rescue him. They stripped him naked. They cast lots for the clothing of Christ. Oh, it seems that David is portraying in vivid clarity and accuracy what will take place in the life of Jesus. What's interesting is that David lived a thousand years before Christ. And I do think that David is looking forward to what will happen to Jesus. And I think, I'll go even one step further. I think that Jesus, in that, on that day, on that fateful Friday, I think that he was looking back a thousand years to the psalm that he helped David write. 
And I think that on that day, Jesus is meditating on this psalm. There are a lot of people who have wondered what was Jesus thinking about on that faithful Friday? What what was he thinking of when he uh, went through crucifixion? And others, people, many people have said, well, he was thinking about others. He was ministering. He was serving. Undoubtedly, he was. You remember the story, don't you? That as he made his way through the streets, uh, he had enormous blood loss. His body was weak. He stumbled. He fell. And there beside him were some weeping women. And he said to them, women, do not weep for yourselves. Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Oh, he was thinking of others as he was making his way to the cross, most definitely, as they hoisted him into the air. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. They're responding in ignorance and arrogance. Yes, even in that moment, Jesus is thinking of others, and he's ministering unto others, serving others. He's even saving others, for he says to the believing criminal on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. He's thinking of other people. He's still handing out salvation there at the very end. He looks at the foot of the cross and there, behold, is his mother. She's weeping. She's leaning, if not collapsed, in the arms of the beloved disciple named John. And Jesus is even thinking about mama in this moment. For Jesus says, woman, behold your son and son, behold your mother. He's taking care of other people even in this moment, wouldn't you say? He's taking care of the, of the other ladies as he's making his way to the cross. He's asking God to forgive those who are responding in ignorance. He's even saving the criminal on the cross who responds in faith. He's even taking care of mama. Yes, Jesus is thinking of other people even at the end. But something changes, doesn't it? About noon, every gospel writer is the same. About noon in the sixth hour, there was darkness that came over the land. A darkness that could be felt. It lasted from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. That means from high noon to three in the afternoon. There was a, an eerie darkness. It blanketed all of Golgotha, all of the sacred city. At that time when the sun should be at the apex of its journey across the sky, it refused to shine. Heavy darkness and then Jesus spoke yet again aloy aloy lama sabachthani which means my God my God why have you forsaken me I think that at some moment Jesus not only quoted this song psalm not only was he living this psalm but I think he was meditating on this psalm I think that Jesus is working his way through this psalm as he's experiencing it, as he's living it. And I think that at about noon or thereafter, he is proclaiming, my God, my God, why have you of all people forsaken me? There's been a lot of ink that's been spilt trying to describe what happened in those hours. The best line that I've ever come across was written by James Boyce. James Boyce said that in that moment, Jesus was bearing our hell so that we may share his heaven. Y'all didn't get that. Because I'm telling you, that's thick. That's heavy. That's rich. 
What happened in that three-hour window of time? What, what, what was going on? What was the transaction that was taking place? James Boyce is on to something. He says that in that moment, Jesus was bearing our hell so that we may share his heaven. Not just a metaphorical, not just a symbolic, uh, not just a spiritual, but in a, some literal sense, Jesus was absorbing our hell. He was taking an eternity's worth of hell upon himself. How is that possible? Well, God is one who not only created time and space, but can stand outside of time and space. And on that day when eternity collided with earth, it is very possible for God to put an eternity's worth of condemnation and shove it and stuff it into a three-hour window of time on a given hill outside of Jerusalem where the God-man, Jesus himself, was taking our hell upon himself so that you and I may share in his heaven. In that moment, he who knew no sin actually became sin for us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so God uh, is, is demonstrating his love for us. And Jesus is proclaiming unto the Father, listen, you and I are one. Yet in this moment, there is a severing. There is a breaking. There is a splintering of a relationship that has always been a sweet communion of Trinitarian, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. But now, my God, my God, why have you of all people forsaken me? I think that Jesus is asking the Father to reduce and shrink the space that's between them. The space that comes because of your sin and mine. It's not that he was sinful, you and I are sinful. And Jesus literally absorbed God's holy hostility. He drank the wrath of God that we deserved and he took it upon himself. It's not just that Jesus took our place. He took our punishment. Scripture calls that the propitiation of our sin, that Jesus actually took the holy hostility. He took the punishment that we deserve. The case is made that he took our hell upon himself. That's not just metaphorical. That's not just Christianese. That's literal. Jesus took our hell so that we may share his heaven. I think that Jesus is meditating on this psalm. I think that he speaks that first verse and he's working his way through that song. I think this is probably on the mind of Christ in those last hours. Oh, yes, he loves you. He loves me. Yes, he's fulfilling the will of the Father. Yes, he's serving and ministering to others. But in this moment, I think, I think that he is contemplating. I think he's meditating upon this song. I think he's clinging to this scripture. There's something powerful in that, isn't there? How are you gonna how are you gonna make it through an Ichabod moment? You better cling to the scripture that you know to be true. That's what Jesus does. He clings to the scripture. He knows how it starts, he authored it. He knows how it ends. So in that moment, he is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? And I think that in, in the human sense, Jesus is waffling just as David was waffling. And he's asking God, please reduce the space that's between us. But then at some point, there's a switch that goes on. At some point, there's a change. I think at some point, Jesus gets down to verse 22. Yet I will declare your name to my brothers. That's not the only place that that verse is quoted. 
You find it again in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12. The New Testament letter, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, quotes this line, Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two. I will declare your name to my brothers. And do you know who the author of the Hebrew letter attributes these words to? It is not David. It's Jesus. He says in Hebrews 2, 12, Jesus said that I will proclaim your name to my brothers. Now, how did Jesus do that? He did that by word and by walk. He did that by his action and by his demeanor. He did that through the cross, to the cross and through the cross. Because you and I understand that when we get to the cross of Calvary, there's a sweet transaction that takes place. We give him our mess, he gives us his mercy. We give him the grossness of our sin, he gives us the grace of his salvation. We give him our sin, he gives us his sanctification. We give him our guilt, he declares upon us his is innocent. There's a sweet swap of salvation that takes place. And because of that, Jesus knows that what he's doing on the cross, he will proclaim to the brothers both now and forevermore. And Jesus knows that what he is doing is something that will be proclaimed forever. So he's living out verses 22 to 31. He's experiencing that that God has not despised or disdained the affliction of the Holy One. That what Jesus is doing on the cross will benefit not only the poor, but also the rich. And what Jesus is doing will be proclaimed so that all the peoples of the earth will remember the Lord and turn to Him. The word turn means to repent. The only way anybody on earth can repent is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His accomplished work at Calvary. And Jesus knows that by what He's doing on that faithful Friday, that He will declare himself and God will declare him to be the king of kings and the lord of lords and he will be the righteous ruler of all the nations he even says that future generations will be told of what the lord has done Future generations will be told of what happened on that hill called Calvary. Future generations, that's you, that's me. And then Jesus understands that even those who have heard and received the gospel, they will go forward and they will tell a generation yet unborn. And what will they say? He has done it. What a powerful phrase. Now, that Hebrew phrase accurately can be translated, he has done it. But if you translate that phrase into Greek or into Aramaic, you know how else that translation can be rendered? It is finished. You remember when Jesus said that? At the very end, when he was about to bow his, bow his head and give up his ghost, what did he declare? It is finished. This is why I say that this psalm is on the mind of Christ. He is meditating on this psalm because, in essence, he quotes the first verse and he quotes the last verse. He says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then at the end, he says, it is finished. He has done it. So, my friend, regarding the punishment for your sin, it is finished. He has done it. Regarding 
the guilt that's associated with your sin, it is finished. He has done it. Regarding uh, all the penalty that ought to be paid for your disobedience and for my disobedience, it is finished. He has done it. Regarding your declared innocence in the sight of God, both now and forevermore, it is finished. He has done it. Regarding your righteousness, which is given upon you because of the work of Christ on the cross, it is finished. He has done it. Regarding your clothing in heaven, which is the righteousness of Christ, it is finished. He has done it. Regarding your home in heaven, it is finished. He has done it. I came this morning to tell you, church, it is finished. And he has done it. So what is there left to do? Nothing except believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. What is there left to do? Nothing but to follow hard after God. What is there left to do? Nothing but to go and make disciples of all the nations. What is there left to do? Nothing but to make much of Jesus. Because undoubtedly, you and I will have Ichabod moments. And when that happens, I have to take my mind to Calvary. When I have feelings of forsakenness, I've got to take my feelings to Calvary. When my body is broken down, I've got to take my body to Calvary. When my spirit is wounded, I've got to take my spirit to Calvary. C.H. Spurgeon said, whenever I preach, I take the text and I make a beeline for the cross. That's pretty good advice in preaching. It's also pretty good advice in living. Whatever comes at you, whatever you're experiencing, whatever you handle, you make a beeline for the cross. And when you get there, you'll discover that your Ichabod moment was nailed to the tree. Jesus paid it all, all to him. I Oh, sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. I can handle my Ichabod moment. You can handle your Ichabod moment because you take it to the cross, and you realize that Jesus has nailed it to the tree, and Jesus died in your stead. Jesus died in your place. He took the punishment that you deserved. He took the hell upon himself, and he, Jesus died he was placed in a borrowed tomb. It was borrowed because he wasn't going to be there very long. And Jesus stayed there on Friday and he stayed there on Saturday, but early on Sunday morning, Jesus got up from the grave. So because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. It's an Ichabod moment. What do you do with an Ichabod moment? What do you do with feelings of forsakenness? What do you do with abandonment? What do you do with frustration in life? You take it to the cross. And you, re and you realize that Jesus nailed your Ichabod moment to the cross. But when before the Lord I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all. So all to him I owe. My sin, it left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And Lord, we can't help but say thank you. There may be somebody here who does not know that their sin 
condemns them to a very real hell. And maybe today, for the first time, they heard that Jesus, you took their hell upon yourself. Somebody's going to endure hell, either the person or Christ. And Jesus has come to take our hell for us. So, Lord, today, if there's somebody listening to my voice and they've never trusted Jesus for salvation, if they've never acknowledged that Jesus was bearing their hell so that we may share in his heaven, I pray that today they'll respond in faith. Lord, um, if those of us who are here and we are Christians, but we get bogged down with Ichabod moments, Lord, help us on this day to cast all our cares upon the one who cares so much for us. If there's somebody here who needs to make this place their church home, let it be. As you lead us, we will respond. In Jesus' name, amen.